1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the pod, and today I talked with Patricia schiaffini Vidani and Michael Monhart about Enticement, a volume of translated short stories by Tibetan author Pema Tseten. Pema Tseten is from Chika, a region of what Tibetans call Amdo that is located in contemporary Qinghai province of the People's Republic of China. He is Tibet's most famous filmmaker and has won awards internationally for his visual storytelling. Less well-known, however, is that he is also a prolific author and translator. Unlike many of his peers, Bema then writes in both Chinese and Tibetan, and this volume includes works translated from both. Enticement is sure to be an important volume better introducing this incredible author's work to an English-speaking audience in an accessible and engaging manner. My conversation with the translators ranged from a discussion of the process of translating these stories to the contents of the stories themselves. It was a fantastic conversation that's given me, personally, plenty to think about. I hope you'll enjoy it too. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm joined by Patricia Schiaffini, Vidani and Michael Monhart, the translators and editors of a new volume called uh, of uh, that it translates the works of Pema Teten, called "Enticement: Stories of Tibet," and published from State University of New York Press. Uh, Patricia is the is one of the pioneers of the study of Sinophone Tibetan literature. A professor at. Texas State University, and also the president and founder of Tibetan Arts and Literature Initiative, an NGO devoted to training Tibetan teachers and promoting Tibetan language education and literacy in China. Michael, on the other hand, is a Jungian psychologist in private practice in New York and a longtime scholar of uh, Tibetan studies who has done fieldwork in Tibetan monasteries in Nepal and published and lectured widely on Tibetan ritual music. Patty and Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, to start off, I was wondering if you guys could tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves.
2: Michael, do you want to start?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, um, I, I started my uh, studies in Tibetan uh, many years ago uh, when I first did a, a graduate program at the University of Washington in uh, ethnomusicology. And the feel, the music that attracted me most, and actually got me into the field of ethnomusicology, was Tibetan ritual music, and my puzzlement about what 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 was behind this music, how was it put together, and so I started studying Tibetan at the University of Washington, um, which back in the nineteen uh, eighties had a great program. Um, after working uh, for a while, I returned and. Let's see, must, the uh, early 2000s and did a, another master's at Columbia uh, in East Asian languages and specifically Tibetan um, and did, did some field work and did some language study in um, Nepal and in India. Um, I met Pema um, probably six, seven years ago when the lotse Foundation brought him to New York City to uh, just improve his English skills in the hopes of, um, profession, um, uh, um, helping his professional career along. Um, I'd had some experience teaching English as a second language and especially to Tibetans. So I volunteered to teach him English, um, not really even knowing who he was. <laughs> um, and so as we progressed along. He said, oh, I make movies and here's a movie. And then he said, oh, I also write short stories. Uh, here's a short story. And uh, that's how I got to know him and got to start translating his stories.
2: Um, in my case, I, um, my studies were in uh, Chinese language and literature. Uh, but, and I studied in China for four years at the University of Beijing University. And while I was uh, studying there, um, a classmate of mine brought to my attention short stories written by Sino-Tibetan authors um, that resembled the style of magical realism. So I started uh, studying those uh, works and translating them, and that, that's what led me to uh, discover more about modern Tibetan literature. And then I came to the U.S. for my master's and my PhD degrees, and I decided to do my um, PhD dissertation on magical realism in the works of Chasitaba and other um, writers that, uh, Tibetan writers that were writing in Chinese. And I just cannot recall when was the first time I met Pema many years ago, but I also met him when he came at that time that he spent several months uh, in the U.S. And at that time is when we started talking about the possibility of translating his works. Um, But of course, the issue that, that, you know, the the, the advantage is that Pema writes in both languages, Chinese and Tibetan, but it, it was a disadvantage for me that I wasn't, uh, I had studied some Tibetan, but I wasn't fluent enough in Tibetan to be able to translate his works um, written in Tibetan. So that's how uh, we ended up um, collaborating with, with Michael on that. And on the side of me being a, a professor of Chinese language and teaching some courses on modern Tibet as well, I have my nonprofit work. With the Tibetan Arts and Literature Initiative, which basically is, um, is a way for me to connect with writers that are interested in writing for children, and Tibetan illustrators as well, and try to um, encourage them or, or uh, fund their, their books for children that we publish, and recently we also uh, make into short animated movies in order to um, spread literacy um, around Tibetan communities. And uh, finally, also training Tibetan teachers. So it's a kind of a combination of academic work and um, and just bringing those uh, things to directly benefit Tibetans in China, if possible.
1: Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, so I guess to start off, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the background of this project in particular. You sort of started in this direction, uh, talking about sort of meeting Bema and this author, and sort of finding out about his short stories and all that, um, but you also—I mean, this was a team of four uh, translators across the across the book, um, and sometimes working as a team in these collaborations can be a little bit of a little bit like herding cats. And I was wondering if um, uh, sort of you would talk about sort of how this project came to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, at this start. It was Michael and I that started working together, but then for example, you know, we realized that um Francoise Robin had translated The Doctor, which is such a wonderful story. So um I asked her if she could if we could use her story. And what was the point in translating again if that translation wasn't really very good? So uh, we just asked her to contribute to the volume. And and the same with uh, Professor Carl Robertson. Um he was very interested in the story Tarlo. So I said, oh, if you love the story so much. Why don't you um, translate it instead of, of being myself the one translating it? So that's how it came um, to you know, all of us collaborating. Um, it's, a, it's been you know, a wonderful collaboration. It just gave us a little bit of work in terms of trying to come up with a coherent voice through the, through the book. But I think it's been very interesting kind of reading everybody's drafts and, and, and talking about the story.
1: Ah, oh, brilliant um and uh, i guess i guess before we pr- proceed any further it perhaps is is useful also to sc- to to sort of introduce Bema Tsetin himself um in case we have any listeners who might be unfamiliar with him michael who is uh bema and why did you guys choose to translate his stories in particular among all the authors out there now oh.
0: Hema um, initially, what I think was most well known for his um, short stories, um, as Patty said, written in both um, Tibetan and Chinese. And um, now I think it certainly has has become, if not the most famous, uh, one of the most famous of um, the Tibetan filmmakers. Um, and is most widely known for his films, uh, which I can highly recommend. They've, uh, he just, uh, it, it, his, as his, um, fame has increased a bit, he's been able to access more resources and his films it just continue to develop. But as he has, has said, he continues to write short stories. Um, like I, I said, I, I got to, my connection to him was, was purely personal, um, I got to know him and started to read his stories and and found them uh I, I think just very special and unique in the sense that they somewhat like his movies they depict daily life um in tibet um they're you know you'd call them secular stories or 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 just depictions of um daily life and and the issues. Um, you know, primarily non-religious issues um, that people deal with. Um,
1: yeah.
2: Yes, I think in my case it was kind of the opposite. I was I started reading his stories and then I got to meet him personally, but uh, he was already a filmmaker and people were already talking about him as a filmmaker. And I and I thought it was just a pity that uh, people were not. I mean, those who admire him as a filmmaker. Uh, didn't know about his uh, career as a writer and how wonderful his stories were, and also the the variety and depth of you know styles and topics that he was dealing with. So that's why I thought it's uh, really worth it to to translate these so we can make it uh, available for to more people.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I, I I've always felt that in film he he's absolutely such a fantastic storyteller. Um, and also when I started reading his, his writing, I, I had a sort of a similar sort of experience, but I came to it through film first, like many, like you've just said, many of the, uh, many of the readers will, um, come into Beymouth's through film and then into this literature. And it's, um, really glad that we have this edition. Um, one of the things that, that, that you sort of mentioned in the, in the, introduction and, and we sort of, we talked, uh, Michael, you mentioned, uh, sort of his portrayals of everydayness, but there were two sort of things that really stood out to me about the, about the, uh, the storytelling as well is both the influence of oral tradition and also sort of the way that he ends his stories without sort of a proper conclusion or, or without sort of, there's sort of this lack of traditional resolution in some ways, um, and I was wondering, uh, Patricia, if you could talk a little bit about that, um, about both how, how how he's been drawn, how he draws on uh, oral traditions and also maybe a little bit about this sort of the way he concludes these stories and sort of this uh, in, in, in his own fashion that also appears in film as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the oral tradition aspect of it is, I think, is very interesting. And it was sometimes a challenge when we were translating um he tends to repeat a lot, um, in the repeats, uh, you know, the language a lot. And that is, um, at the beginning, I couldn't understand why the, his characters sometimes in writing, at least uh, will repeat themselves so much. And then I understood it was uh an influence of the oral tales because in the oral tale, um, the performer needs to kind of recap, right? So it makes a, a short summary and then, uh, Repeats again when the audience has changed, maybe it has to repeat again a little bit, so I was starting exploring whether these uh, kind of rhetorical devices could be uh, what were influencing the language of his short stories um so that that's my theory I may be wrong, but that's what I was feeling when I was reading um and translating him and and then we had a lot you know a lot of conversations with him and interviews where we talked about the importance of. Um, storytelling and oral tales and he you know told me several times how he used to listen to traditional um tales uh when he was a child such as you know the um, the tales of the golden corpse right um that were so so famous uh, famous in tibet and um and he was just mesmerized that was his introduction to to literature when he was a child so i think that background influenced him quite a lot um there is also some I think that some of the things that you find in his writings, you find in his movies as well. He tends to he has a tendency of having media inside media. For example, uh, shots of um, people watching TV. So um, while we are watching them on on the screen as well, and or uh, people listening to the radio uh, while we listen to the dialogue and things like that. That um, you also can, you know, I think that also can be observed in in the way he writes. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or you have more, more specific questions about, about that.
1: Oh, no, Well, no, I think that's great. I think I, I, I feel that there's both this um, sort of this formal layer and also this thematic layer in which he's drawing heavily on these oral traditions. And I think that is a really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Um, As
0: Patty said, it it really, certainly on the Tibetan side was one of the, the most significant challenges I I face because somewhat because of the structure of Tibetan grammar, but certainly also because of Pema's um, invocation of the of the oral tradition, there was quite a lot of re, re, repeats, quite literal repeats, which in English can um, kind of seem stilted or kind of interrupt the flow. But while in but in Tibet and in the oral tradition, they kind of um, lend a certain rhythm and cadence to the to the to the tale or to the literature, and I think that's actually something that that sense of temporality that he um, conveys in the story is uh, similar to the temporality that's uh, that uh, that a movie holds just by nature.
2: Uh-huh. Yes. Your other, your other question was about uh, the unresolved endings, right? So yes. I was—I I will let Michael start with that one uh, because he had a, he, he had done some thought about it. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's—you it, know—I think it's one of the things I most admire, and, and, and thank you, Tim, for, for pointing it out. It's—it's um, it's true in a stories and it's, um, true in his movies. And it's, I think it, it, it goes back to his depiction of, um, real life in a sense that he, he resists the temptation to kind of, um, uh, create a, a certain false narrative when, and come to a dramatic ending, but it's more like, this is a depiction of what someone's life is and it goes on after the story ends, just like the characters in the, his movies, their life goes on. Um, so I, I, I think they, they, there's a real trueness to life there that he conveys um, by kind of resisting that dramatic ending.
2: Yeah, there's also the ending is always surprising one way or another. It is surprising because you want, you want it more, you want to know more about what's going on, or it's surprising because um, it just uh, it happens all of a sudden, and you're saying, no, and now what? You know, So sometimes I wonder whether it's just not on purpose that he's saying, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to give you the answer of everything, uh, but just a slice of what is happening in the lives of these um, characters. So I find it very interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was certainly something that stood out to me as well, but it also does seem to be sort of one of the, one of the parts of his mastery almost as a storyteller is his ability to sort of know when to just sort of let things let life continue. Hmm. Um, And it's really interesting. Um, Finally, before moving on um, to, the, to the book itself, um, Pema then, as you've po- both pointed out, is, uh, he writes in both Chinese and Tibetan. Um, and some of the stories translated here are actually written in both Chinese and Tibetan or have both Chinese and Tibetan versions. And I, I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about how you navigated that um, in, in, your, sort of, in your process of creating this book.
2: Yes, we worked uh, starting from anthologies of his, of his works published in Tibetan and in Chinese. And uh, we talked to him about uh, which uh, short stories we should translate. You know, there were short stories that were our favorites, but we also wanted to hear uh, which short stories um, he wanted uh, the readers to, to read as well. And we all agreed when i mean the ones that he liked the most were also the ones that we liked the most so that was easy but and then we started just translating in, in our from from the languages that we were you know in my case chinese and michael's in, uh, case tibetan um but then sometimes i've i've read uh, the chinese versions of the stories just to see and um some of them are a little bit different you know and, and that's something that emetchi himself mentioned uh, several times to us that um he translates, he tends to translate his, his stories. Maybe he's inspired by a topic, uh, and he writes the story in Tibetan and then, um, he decides to translate it to Chinese and it may not be necessarily word by word, um, because he may think that the Chinese readers need more explanation of this or that that maybe Tibetan readers don't do. So he does kind of an interpretation at the same time that he's translating. Um, so there, there may be some, Slight differences in between the stories in one language or the other, or some stories that he openly said, I think this story is more appropriate for Tibetan readers because it will not say much to Chinese readers, for example. So it's interesting how, in his mind, he has an, a clear idea of readership and and uh, and the language where in which a story should come out uh, for the first time. That doesn't mean that maybe in a little while he will not decide to translate it to the other language, you know. But it was a very interesting process to see to see that.
0: It really was. In talking to him and literally sitting there with the uh, table of contents of his anthologies, he had a very clear sense of um, which stories should be translated from Tibetan and which from Chinese. And and to some degree, it was because there were in the Chinese stories, he would explain more to uh, what he felt was a non-Tibetan audience um, aspects that a Tibetan audience would just m- know. Um, as part of their their background knowledge, and so for example um a new golden corpse which um, you know is a very famous tibetan oral story there's more explanation about it in the um chinese version-
2: mm-hmm. yes like background background explanation that the reader the chinese reader may, will need right and and the American reader too or the english reader i'm sorry mm-hmm
1: so, so for the, the stories translated from Tibetan, then how did you sort of handle this? Did you sometimes crib some sections from the Chinese where, where some of that extra uh, explanation of cultural practices was included? Or did you just try to stay more faithful to that, um, Tibetan text that perhaps lacked that degree of explanation? I with
0: I state. I'm, I'm a very faithful to the text, <laughs> um, translator. So I think sometimes to a fault, um, and, but I, we found, and I think, it, I, I think it's true that with the Tibetan stories that, um, they kind of stood on their own. Um, and I'll, I'll say with one major exception, which was a single sheet of paper and, you know, they're, as we get into some of the more magical realism stories, uh, towards the end of the collection, uh, it can be very difficult to, to translate when, uh, the, a, a sentence opens up with a, a blue sun, you're going, am, am I translating this correctly? <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and there Patty was really able to help me a lot with a very difficult story. Um, by reading the Chinese version and us working together on it.
2: Yeah. That story was, was puzzling and I hope that readers like it. Um, but it is, it was kind of puzzling and hard to translate. Yeah.
1: I can only imagine to me. I mean, it seemed, yeah, that, that particular one we'll come to it in a little bit, but it was, it was quite difficult to to unpack. So, um, yeah moving into the to the book itself or or to the meat of the book itself you have these stories uh and it does seem as you just sort of suggested Michael that you go from more it works along a spectrum from the more realist to the the more um uh, magical realist um or 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 the more fantastic perhaps um and um and, and it begins with this story about Orjian, uh, a character named Ordin and his teeth, um in which um in which this w- title character is sort of remembering his life with a childhood friend who then was recognized as a lama. And after he passed that uh friend's the llama's teeth were then collect or before he passed when he was recognized his teeth were collected and then after he passed they were put in a reliquary uh a churten a stupa for people to uh, for for circumambulation and other worship um michael can you tell us a little bit about this story and sort of maybe what it what it means to you and how it tells us perhaps about tibetan belief in contemporary china maybe
0: yeah this is it was one of my favorite stories um I think one aspect uh, of this story in particular um, which doesn't come out some in in some of his other stories is um his sense of humor and there's some um, very subtle but i think very humorous uh points uh in the story uh, but I think it also it goes back to that um sense of depicting um, daily life, uh, real life. Uh, I think Pema grew up, uh, he, sa- he said he grew up near uh, a tulku or a re- reincarnated lama. And the, you know, there's certainly a, a, a strong sense of reverence um, towards this uh, lama in the story, but also this kind of just a uh, sense of, okay, Yes, he's a reborn Lama, but we grew up together and I gave him my homework and he copied my homework and but I couldn't help him on the test. And it's kind of like, OK, there is this sense of very sincere sense of devotion towards the Lama's to the religion. But here's here's kind of what it is day to day to live in this um, in this context of going to school with somebody like that.
2: Yeah. And then it's, it, uh, I think it's interesting. The sense of humor you also see in the ending It's always that last punch that, um, yeah. Pema, Pema gives the reader. So I don't know if you want us to, to, you know, talk about the ending, but in any case, it's that su- surprising aspect of it. And then that it seems that at the, at the end, you, you cannot but just laugh, you know, and I've seen that also with the ending, for example, of, um, other stories, um, like, um, a new golden corpse, uh, tail gun or, you know, or uh, afternoon, this kind of that, uh, ending that is close to it kind of a humoristic ending that I think is so, so interesting.
1: Yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's just give our, our listeners a little forewarning. If you don't want to know the ending, maybe fast forward about 30 seconds from now. Um, but if you do, uh, yeah. Can you guys sort of, sort of tell us what, what, about that, uh, sort of humorous ending in the way that, the way that comes out.
2: Michael, that's you. Yeah. it. Uh,
1: it
0: the, the narrator um, goes in search of trying to figure out just how many teeth are in a, in, in a, in a normal human being. Um, as the monks try to collect all these different teeth and end up with way more teeth than a human being should have. Um, and it, sparks a memory of him losing a teeth and throwing it up on the roof and uh, having it included. So here at the end, he's thinking one of his teeth is actually in the reliquary um, and will be there for, for all of time, <laughs> being okay.
1: venerated.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, That's interesting.
1: It is. It's a really interesting moment. Um, and 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 a, and a fantastic ending. Um, so after Odine's teeth, then we have this um, this story Tarlo, um, which is probably uh, which he has adapted into what has now probably become his most famous or at least his most award winning film, having won awards in at the Venice Film Festival. Um, and uh, this one, you guys, uh, w- or collectively, you guys chose to translate it from the. From the Chinese, um, Patty, can you sort of tell a little bit about Tarlo in case anybody doesn't know about it, and sort of um, sort of how it how it fits in this collection?
2: Yes, uh, Tarlo is uh, that's the name of the protagonist, who's a shepherd, a herdsman uh, without family, and he's never been away from his uh, from the mountains. Basically, he's not. Uh, doesn't know how to socialize very well because he's mostly always with uh tending the you know the the sheep and um he doesn't see a lot of people so uh, at some point he has everybody in the village is uh, summoned to um take their have their pictures taken and uh get into you know get a an identification card so he's called and he has to go to the city nearby and get his ID um, and is a new experience for him because he has he had not been in the uh, county city before, and the whole experience of taking a picture um, is kind of new to him. And uh, everybody talks about his uh, braid. He has a little braid, and and in the in the process he meets uh, somebody that uh, you know he he's not sure about what kind of relationship that person was to have with him, and and in the end leads to to. Possibly you know that person uh, stealing his money and things like that, so it's kind of a that tension in between uh, the people coming from the countryside to the to the city and also the Tibetans in the city being Chinese um, side or kind of uh, kind of more accustomed to the Chinese ways of doing things or the you know um, the modern city life ways of doing things and the shock that he has and then again it has a it has an ending that is surprising. It's different from the movie. I think the movie uh takes this to a more dramatic, you know, um ending, uh, which the story doesn't have. The story's ending is kind of bitter uh is bitter comic. So it's uh it's it has a it has humor, but still you feel the sadness of the character. Um but it's um so it's, it makes it into a very interesting story. I don't know if Michael wants to add something of his own reading of Tarlow. No,
1: that's
0: that's great.
2: Uh,
1: I would also add, m- one of the things that most interests me about Tarlo as a phenomenon is the way it is so multimedia. I mean, it, we have the story version now translated into English. There's the film, which is phenomenal, but also shot in black and white, which is interesting in its own way. Um, the hip-hop artist Dejit Zirang made a rap song also in black and white with a vi- with a black and white video in which he's rapping about Tarlo and uh, the title character Shitinima or the the person who plays the title character Shitinima uh in the same year also created a comic sketch in which he and the uh, the f- primary female character in the in the in the in the film sort of do Tarlow Part Two, in which they sort of meet again years later, um, and we have we have this whole sort of multimedia phenomenon surround that that extends from this this story, which I just think it, it is fascinating and also m- makes the the written version itself so so worthy in, of of reading and inclusion. Um, so thank you guys.
2: No problem. One one thing that I think both both uh, the movie and the um, story share is that uh, those passages when he's uh, reciting uh, Mao Zedong's uh, speech, you know, and that, I think that's uh, very interesting because it's yet another way in which Pema Zedong is showing you how mm, Tibetan people were exposed to communism, but somebody like Tarlow never fully understood the meaning of what he was uh, forced to recite and memorize, you know, and it's, uh, it's interesting. And I think the same way the same uh, lack of understanding of the context uh, of that communist uh, passage happens when he goes to the city because it's a reality that he has never experienced before. So again, there's that um, misunderstanding of maybe uh, clues that the city people are giving him, and the misunderstanding of that of that background, that whole background. So, it's, and how he has to negotiate these things, you know. So it's, it makes it extremely interesting.
1: Yeah, it's it's it really is a masterwork. Following on from that, we have this story Men and Dog. Um Michael, tell us a little bit about this story.
0: It it, it always I kind of think of it in terms also of Pema's movie uh, old dog and his in a sense taking up this uh um, the role of dogs and in tibetan society this it was actually men and dog i think was one of his more one of his stories that um almost reads like a, like a film it you know it starts with a um a setting of people who come together um just not not through any planning but they come together every year at this one place um in winter and it it speaks um I it was a very powerful and, and in a way somewhat and very disturbing story, but it speaks to, um, again, he depicts kind of what's happening in, in, in over the course of this day and night with each of these families that comes together just on a very personal level, but also very masterfully invokes kind of the, um, mass, or in this case, a mass of four families, the, the kind of group um, fear or group hysteria that can come over people and cause them to act in a way that is, is puzzling to themselves. And that's how the story ends with this, um, again, one of his dramatic endings that leaves you just uh, unsure of what the people themselves even
2: feel. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's interesting also the way in which he's depicting the families during the beginning of that evening being so uh, loving towards themselves. You know, there's, there's a family, that the couple that just married, and the, the daughter that is taking care of her uh, mother who's sick, and the way that they can be so loving and so tender to each other, and, and then that they can also come to this, you know, mask. History or, uh, that uh, Michael referred to, and commit an act of you know savage act. Um, so kind of that duality in in the human being, I think, is interesting. I don't know if it's worth you know exploring it, but um, Pema has a fascination with dogs, and I think um, it, writing about dogs or other people who have written about dogs. And he mentioned that he wanted to um, to. To publish, he's been translating um, uh, stories of other Tibetan writers who write in Tibetan into Chinese to publish kind of a series on on Tibetans and dogs, you know. So, and I think that much can be said about the Tibetan Mastiff as a representation of of uh, the Tibetan nationality um, some, somehow, right? So it's so it's things that can be researched in in this short story and also in. Uh, his movie, All Dog. What is the symbology of that Tibetan Mastiff?
1: Absolutely, I was. That was going to be my follow-up, actually, um, sort of about this place of the Mastiff, because I think you're right. I think there's this whole sort of phenomenon around the Mastiff uh, uh, in in Tibet that ties in with sort of a broader, now waning, craze for Tibetan Mastiffs that saw them become extremely expensive, um, dogs for that, that people particularly in the Chinese cities would purchase. Um, also saw stories about Tibetan Mastiffs as well. One that comes to mind is the, um, uh, in from Han authors, including, um, the popular, um, sort of internet novel Zhang Di Mima, the Tibet code, which features, um, this whole sort of section uh, that, I mean, it, the it, the whole story begins around a photograph of an impossibly large mastiff. So I think, I think, I think you're, you're right in pointing out there's this whole sort of thing, both for Bhima personally, but in sort of broader ethnic and national sort of imaginaries uh, about Tibet. Moving on to the next story, we have Afternoon, which I thought was just, a really interesting and humorous story as well, sort of following this character named Young Wong Bum uh, as he, um, as he sort of tries, as he prepares to go on uh, visit his lover, um, following the sort of the Tibetan tradition of night visitations, somehow oblivious to the fact that it's actually broad daylight.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a quite interesting story. <laughs>
1: And 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 in it we also have this appearance of this character, Uncle Tumba, who's uh Uncle Tumba is a uh sort of a Tibetan folk hero. Um and I think there's just there seems to be a lot going on in this story and 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 Patty, I was hoping you could help us sort of unpack some of this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the funny thing is that through the cor- the course of the day, uh some people are giving him uh, cues about not being, I mean, he, he, he keeps telling people that, um, I see you a certain time or, or things like that. Uh, he himself keeps looking at the sun and thinking that is the moon and understanding, um, kind of praising people for working so, um, so hard, uh, at night, uh, when in fact they're working during the day or, uh, or thinking that, um, Uncle tomba is just praying outside his house in the evening when in fact he's doing that during the day and things like that that makes it very interesting um it's also interesting to see him his um the background of this of this um character he has uh he's an orphan so um and apparently several women would would like to for him to become uh their husband but he's set on Uh, dolma uh, his girlfriend and he wants to marry her but at some point he's reminded that he really has nothing uh to his name to be able to marry her so it's it's interesting because it also gives a glimpse to uh, what is to marry in traditional Tibetan society um which i think it makes it uh, very interesting Uh, i i love the the humoristic ending when he realizes that in fact he's not uh, the middle of the night, but the middle of the day, and then he just decides okay i 'll just go back and take a nap and come back at night so as as if nothing had happened and so I think it's just this uh quite interesting uh, as a whole story because you don 't know that he's just completely misguided about the time of the day until the end of the story
0: One of the things i I like about the the story so much is uh as patty said the the humor. In it, but it also, in, in a sense, like Men and Dog, uh, it, it, it concentrates on a very kind of small uh, inside story of, 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 of Tibetan culture. Some of the other stories uh, has the following one: A Sheep and Ngong. We see the the conflicts that arise between traditional culture and we will say Westernized, Western uh, modernizing influences. But um, this story and and the preceding one, "Men and Dog," are, are very just kind of small um, depictions or snapshots of uh, of, of Tibetan life. Uh,
2: Team, what was your take on on the appearance of um, Uncle the yeah, Uncle Tom?
1: Well, I was just personally a little bit fascinated by it because you do see it in the work of some other authors, where Uncle Dumba is this character who, who comes in in different ways. I'm thinking of the Sinophone Tibetan author Alai, for example, has a short story about Uncle Dumba, but also in his novel about King Gesar, the epic hero of Tibet, he also in this novel he includes Gesar meeting Uncle Dumba and thinking about what that would be like. And sort of, so, so, so it was interesting to me the, the, the way that, um, the way that then also sort of finds a place for Uncle Tambay in his, in his narrative and sort of the way that it works in. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah. uh Michael, you, you just mentioned eight sheep, um, which I also thought was this really interesting story because this is the first, first time we have sort of a foreigner, a foreign character working their way into one of the stories. Uh, Prior to this point, it seems like all the stories have been resolutely Tibetan, pretty much um, in in their content. Now we, and this story, it has uh, a character named Yellow sitting on the grassland and a foreigner just sort of walks up to him. And in the process, this foreigner who happens to, I think be from New York city finds out about nine 11 happening back home um and and in the end walks off uh a little shaken uh can you can you sort of tell us a little uh, a little bit more about eight sheep and its and its sort of navigation of this uh transnational encounter
2: um yes um it is is very interesting because it starts talking from the perspective of the young shepherd Um, and then, uh, he's lost. He has lost his mom and he's very sad about it. Um, he has lost even more recently, uh, sheep that have been uh, killed by wolves. And, um, so he's trying to deal with his grief and then he finds this foreigner. And then towards the end, um, the foreigner is trying to deal with the grief of, um, realizing that his city has been attacked. And in the process of them, dealing with the grief um they, they are not able to communicate uh because the foreigner doesn't speak tibetan and yarlo doesn't speak um uh, uh english or, or or even chinese yeah, the foreigner speaks a little bit of chinese and it's interesting how they are able to um to to kind of uh, like each other and they share uh, food and they um gifts um but um they always misunderstand what the other is trying to say in a way that um, ends their own conversation or their own uh, assumptions about the other. So um, they, they misunderstand each other, but it's a, in a very cute and, and lovely way. Um, but in the end, I think they are able to to maybe become friends, even though they are not able to communicate verbally. Um, and, and comfort each other one way or another uh, through these little gifts that they are giving each other or the food. They understand that uh, there is a sense of loss and desperation in, in one another, and they try to comfort each other, even though they don't, they don't understand exactly what is the loss that uh, each of them has been experiencing. So I think that's what makes the story so, so interesting
0: i think one of it, it's it, it, to me it's it's so interesting is in what seems like a simple story hema's really kind of operating on two very different levels uh at, at one of this conflict be- uh, or encounter between cultures who literally don't understand each other um but also on a very human uh level as Patty said of of grief, of of loss and being able to uh reach across to each other to, through that shared
2: experience. There are also little hints, you know, Pima is not a is not a political writer. He doesn't he's not interested in making political statements at all. But uh you can still see little things on how life is influencing, on what's going on socially. The, the political changes are influencing the day-to-day life of the Tibetan nomads. Or like fencing, for example, there is a, a time where the, the boy, the boy, constantly uh, saying, uh, "Oh, somebody's approaching," and that person has to jump over fences because now, because now the grasslands are fenced. And, um, he, and at some moment, I think he even mentions how that has caused some. Issues with with uh, like people used to get along better before fencing, but not after fencing. So even though it's not making a political statement, it's also still telling you how these things um, are affecting the lives of people just by telling you so and so has to jump over the fence, you know, and and things of that nature. So um, it makes it it makes it into a very uh, a whole picture of how things are. And also, you know, these foreigners coming, the foreigners maybe idealizing Tibet um, the same way that these men. Um, the, the traveler idealized Tibetans and Tibet, and and the reality that in the end the foreigner doesn't really understand life in Tibet, and and Tibetans don't really understand um, him either. So that makes it interesting.
1: I think you're right. I think it's one of the masterpieces, and I'm really glad you brought that up. And sort of the masterpieces, master strokes of his narrations, where it's sort of just in narrating real life these These various changes to real life sort of make their way in in different ways With Tarlo, it's the 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 struct- the need for a identification that is issued by the state and and then the um the fencing in of the grasslands in a sheep it, 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 in every way these sort of you can't be realistic without those which is really fantastic um The following, the following uh, story was really we start is where we start to get sort of away from the 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 very realistic, or or uh, of the of the stories and start work start moving towards the more the more fantastic, Um, and it's called and it's this is the the story from which the uh, from which the volume takes its title Enticement. Um, and in this story, we have this title, this character named John Denzin, who starts, to, who has this karmic connection that with a book that just draws him to it, um, in almost disturbing ways. Um, and, uh, Patty, you translated this from the Chinese. Um, tell us a little bit about this, about enticement. Mm-hmm.
2: The, the story is fascinating because, um, when you think you understand the main character, it just takes a turn and then you see another side of the main character that you didn't saw it, it existed. And then it, when you think that, oh, now I understand what's going on, then it makes another turn. And I think that's what makes it um, enticing and, and fascinating. So, um, And also the the more magical, realist aspects that are present in this story. So the story starts with this young boy being <coughs> mesmerized by uh the apecha or you know, the sutras that um uh an old man has in the village and he befriends the, the daughter of the man just to be able to approach uh that that uh you know sutra and then um He's never able to get close to it. Uh, the man obviously doesn't understand that karmic connection that you mentioned of the boy with the the scriptures, and and he misunderstands him. He thinks he just will, you know will not um, pay do uh, respect to them. So it, it always locks uh, the pictures in, in in boxes and this and that. And there's a you know a series of different things that happen, and and he ends up marrying the girl just to have access to it. Uh, after the father dies. So that's when you start seeing, you know, kind of the non-holy uh, I- I- image of him and other things that happen in the story that I, I don't want to really ruin the experience of the reader. But um, it gets to a point where you start thinking that he's just crazy, you know. So you, you, at the beginning, you understand the connection with the with the, the scriptures that he might have. But then all of a sudden, you think that he's he's just gone mad. And, and then, at the, towards the end of the story, you understand that he was just karmic linked to that um to that uh pecha especially and and his fight the constant fight to be able to open it until his death, you know so it's just um it, 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 i think I would say it's maybe my favorite story um by Pema said I don't know if Michael wants to add more to that
0: yeah i would i just add it and it, it's similar to the first story. Bergen's teeth that it it it, it 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 it's part of hema's uniqueness that he can depict the you know, it, the devotion um the uh, the karmic links the idea of karmic links to to books um very sincerely but also um it, it show the the kind of just um Actually, the the what it's like to actually grow up and, or or and be uh in uh, this in a the the tibetan culture um which is so influenced by religion i think there's a tendency in the west to sort of idealize the tibetan religion and and pema kind of brings us down to earth but um not in a sarcastic or even critical way, but you know, one that balances both. Kind of okay. This is what it's really like, um, with a, a, a sincere devotion.
2: Yeah, it's, there's. There's. I'm just thinking about this uh, old man that that was kind of the owner of that uh, of that set of scriptures that he was, you know, so mesmerized by, and how at some point. He, that old man uh, becomes a monk that has to take care of our protagonist right so and 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 he's a monk but he's not necessarily a monk you can um, identify with so is that what Michael was saying that other side of of um, of religion right there's so also some moments in that um, they that are very comical uh, in a story that they ha- has also some tragic moments but I'm still for example remember um, how the woman at the it, one, the woman at the story is killed and she steals, grabs one of her shoes in her hand. So that, that makes it a very tragic, comical, you know, instance or at the end of the story when, um, the little, the young, one of the young llamas is just kind of, uh, he knows that she, he shouldn't be looking at, uh, uh, something, but he's just picks because he cannot help it and things like that. And there's also there are also moments of true beauty in the way that he pema masters the language. I remember for example struggling of how to convey the beauty of of a description when he think when he explains that um, the protagonist is so um attracted by the scriptures that he can he sees um a myriad of uh color katas coming from the scriptures and kind of grabbing him so it was so hard for me to to come up with a way, a beautiful way to portray that, the, the enticement that he felt by the scriptures and how he really felt physically moved to them through that kind of a, you know, I don't know, it's just so hard to explain. People have to read it. But I think that um, in terms of the mastery of the language, this is a story that where Pema has proved that he's a true master in, in writing.
1: Absolutely. Um yeah it's an it's an it's a really excellent story that really resists the sort of simple descriptions i'm asking you to give here and and people definitely do need to read it um the next story in the in the volume i think in my first reading this was probably my favorite uh just as a folklorist by training myself this one entitled a new golden corpse gun um and and this this story i really did enjoy it sort of builds off of the 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 stories of the golden corpse and it's this sort of frame story uh, in which a boy has to go and take a golden corpse to his master and he's not allowed to talk to the corpse. And if he does, it will return to the um, charnel grounds where it is uh, where it stays most of the time. Um, And, while they walk together, or while the boy is carrying the golden corpse, the golden corpse tries to tell him stories to get him to talk, to get him to say a word. Uh, and in this, Vanatitan is reimagining or or working within this larger tradition, or or, or appropriating this larger tradition to tell the story about about uh, multiple generations in one family. And the place of guns and local religious beliefs, and all these, and and, and gambling, and all these other sort of social things going, going ar- around in this depiction. It really is a fascinating story. Um, Paddy, how does how does gun sort of fit in, and and sort of help us better understand Be Matzitin's corpus a- a- and this this particular volume in particular?
2: I think that he's uh, you know he told me, so he was always fascinated by the Golden Corp sale. And in fact, it was one of his first translations. I think that when he thought that he, because we haven't talked about it, but um, Pema is a a wonderful filmmaker and a wonderful writer, but he's an avid translator himself. And that's part of his studies, but also something that he enjoys, really enjoys doing. So he wants to translate, um, a lot of things written in Tibetan to Chinese to share it with with um, those who cannot read China, Tibetan, and actually this was one of the, the first stories that he translated when he was very young, and I think that he was he just wanted to give a new spin on it, so um, he took this old tale and and just changed the story a little bit or added new things uh, like the presence of this gun and, and new characters, and uh, we try to convey that by because it was kind of hard to to tell the readers which part of the story was the original part that he was just uh, you know reusing and which part of the story was um, his own new adding. So we did it by changing the, the fonts somehow um, so people will understand. And I think one of the factors that is very important is that it retains that comical aspect of um, the golden corpse always trying to trick the, the carrier of the golden corpse and um and uh, as always the end of it you know the end of the story is what gives you that last uh, sense of of Pema Seten's humor and and the impossible of of different situations as you mentioned um there are different layers of meanings in the story because it's also a very interesting social critique towards gambling and the loss of um um traditional Tibetan beliefs like we saw in Tarlo and, and other stories. So there's a lot to read, um, um, in that story itself.
0: I think Patty had the idea of, of, uh, using both fonts to, to depict the, to separate uh, and identify the, the traditional aspects of the story and then how Pema has updated. And I think it was just a, a stroke of genius on, on Patty's part to do that because you, you really see, um, the the roots and the tradition and then how Pema has taken this story a very traditional story of a of a trickster um and updated it to something that someone today can read and and enjoy and and ponder over without um without it and and, ma- and making it more accessible to to people now
1: absolutely it was i mean it really really sort of draws you in um the final three stories in this collection are a little bit harder to describe. So I'm not going to give much introduction to them. Um, but Michael, maybe you can tell us, um, since, since all of them were translated from the Tibetan, um, Michael, maybe you can tell us a little bit about these three. So uh, a single sheet of paper first, you sort of mentioned a little bit earlier. It seemed really sort of impenetrable. Tell us a little bit about this story.
0: Well, it it is, I agree, it is impenetrable in some ways, and we, you know, wondered whether to include it or not, um, even amongst our, our, uh, the the translators involved in our group, but it, it Pema, it was a a story that Pema picked out specifically and, and really wanted to in, in, include. And like I uh, noted earlier, it came with a, a fair amount of translation difficulties because it's such a... Um, a fantastic, it's, it's like a dream, like, or a fantasy. Uh, you can say magical realism, but it's kind of a, a dream or a fantasy that you're kind of wondering what's, what's actually going on here. Um, what's happening. The next story Gong, again, goes into this kind of fantastical world of, um, two people who, uh, you can see through their bodies and how they become uh, an object of display and here again one can see the conflict between traditional culture and uh, modernizing influences and 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 pema depicts so wonderfully the uh, influences of news organizations scrambling to get a story or the effects of tourism down to you know discarded cigarette butts and and fruit peels uh, lying on the street and then they kind of just gr- the greed that can um emerge in in a in a small community but it's it's it was actually the first story i translated and and still one of my favorite because there's just um a beautiful poignancy that comes through a story, and particularly at the end, um, a poignancy. I think for uh, kind of older traditional um, Tibetan culture that's very much rooted in the land and, and specifically in the mountains.
2: Yes, and that, I think that one thing that I wanted to say about a single sheet of paper um, is that um, it reflects. That I mean, if if you can take out something of that, such a Complex story is, I think, the fear of maybe what's going to happen, um, in the millennia, you know, when, when, when we get to the new millennia or something like that. I don't know maybe that, that is kind of one of the stories coming up of that, um, sense of insecurity or uh, not knowing what the future will bring us. Um, so I, that's something that, that could be taken out of it. For gang, there's so many also, again, layers of meanings if you want to think about, why he's choosing for these two characters that clearly represent Tibet, you know, and, and Tibetan identity to be transparent, and for people to to want to take advantage of them, um, a, a lot of things that can be read into that. And I think it's not a coincidence that he chose to write it in in Tibetan to begin with. Um, so th- these are really stories. These last three stories uh, leave you a lot to think uh, um, about, um, also with Doctor. That um is a story of villages are um, losing a sense of you know they're just forgetting about their identity completely and um and just uh they spend the whole story waiting for the doctor to come and save them um and in the end that, that doesn't happen but it's uh, quite interesting that also this story doctor um that has um, makes you think so much about um the continuity of Tibetan identity and how people, um, you know, kind of fight to preserve Tibetan identity when so many changes are being introduced due due to globalization and things like that. And how I think this Pema's writing these stories in in these styles that are kind of surrealistic or magical realistic is a way for him to let us think about those topics because um, it's really hard to... I mean, he has delved into this uh, topics in a more realistic way, like we saw in Tarlo, but uh, he does it in a in a different way, in a surrealistic or kind of uh, surreal way for us to think even more about those issues.
0: You know, as Patty said, him is not um, an overtly political writer, but these last three stories um, they're kind of three three different takes or three different facets of um, looking at identity and looking at. Um, Changing identity uh, at this time at this time uh of political and social change.
2: And so he doesn't make a statement, he just uh brings something up for you to think about it. And that's why I think makes Pema such a a wonderful writer.
1: Absolutely. I, I agree on all points. Um well, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, both of you, uh, and I want to thank you so much for, for being so generous with it. Um, before I let you go, though, uh, I was wondering if you guys could talk about what sort of what you, what you guys are working on now or what's coming next.
2: I've been working, uh, you know, I've been doing research and I'm taking my students to Tibetan areas to do research on environmental problems in Tibet and um, how those environmental problems are related to um, you know, solutions that uh, Tibetans are looking for uh, right now and how that also links to the preservation of Tibetan identity and religion. So those those are the things I'm looking into recently.
0: I, two of my uh, great loves are uh, history and literature. So I've uh, actually been going back and uh, renewing some research on a a very a fascinating uh, 17th century uh, Tibetan Lama, Katok Sewong Norbu, who was a, a historian himself and uh, was a, a mediator among many of the conflicts at that time, uh, as well as uh, Pema's certainly whetted my appetite for contemporary Tibetan literature, which is just uh, exploding. And there's just so many talented Uh, writers uh, writing now whose um, uh, works works aren't accessible. So uh, it's my hope to try to make a little bit more of this great talent and creativity uh, more accessible.
1: Oh, that sounds both projects sound so amazing. I can't, can't wait to see what you both start coming out with in the near future. Well, Patty, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. um, And for telling us a little bit about your new book. Thank Thank you so much.